Okay, um, so I'm uh, currently in the third year of my sociology PhD at uh, Surrey University, and um, what I'm going to be talking to you um, about today is based on one of my analysis or ethnography um, chapters, and it's very much a work in progress, so your feedback and comments will be most appreciated. Um, my PhD, PhD research is um, situated within the broad field of race and ethnicity studies, uh, with a specific focus on the relationship between whiteness and Englishness, processes of social inclusion and exclusion in the English countryside, the migration of Eastern European migrant workers to rural England since 2004, and rural discourses of community and multiculture. Drawing on 12 months of uh, residential ethnographic research in a rural Worcestershire village, which I will refer to as Mayfield, uh, my PhD project explores the way in which white English villagers affirm their sense of identity and rural belonging in relation to Eastern, Eastern European migrant horticultural labourers who live and work on the village farms. My study also examines the narratives of migrants themselves to understand their experiences of living and working in rural England. Um, but today my talk is just based on one of my ethnography chapters from my PhD thesis, which focuses on degrees of multicultural intimacy between Mayfield villagers and Eastern European migrants. So before I start, um, I'll just give you a little bit of background information on the village itself and on my methodology. So Mayfield's economy has for centuries been reliant on the agriculture and horticulture industries, and the surrounding landscape is dominated by miles of glass houses and polytunnels used for growing plants, fruit and vegetables. Despite the fact that the local economy relies heavily on these industries, only around 8% of Mayfield's residents work in the agricultural and horticultural sector. This statistic reflects the current trend whereby large farms and market gardens in Worcestershire are increasingly employing migrant workers from Eastern Europe to conduct unskilled manual labour rather than recruiting from local labour pools. It's difficult to know how many migrants are living and working in Mayfield at any one time, but anecdotal evidence from farmers and growers in the village suggests that there are probably around 300 in peak season plus another 600 in the two neighbouring villages, um, and hundreds more in the wider local area, including the uh, nearby small market town of Elmbridge, which is about three miles away. According to the 2001 census, the population of Mayfield is approximately 1,200. 99.1% of the population are white, and of the white population, 98% are white British and 2% white other. Asian, black, mixed, and Chinese or other ethnic group uh, together make up the reigning, remaining 0.9% of the village population. So in other words, approximately 12 people out of a population of 1,200 um, self-identify as non-white. Um, in total, uh, during my 12 months of fieldwork, I conducted 30 in-depth interviews with Mayfield residents. Um, I also conducted 12 months of participant observation in the village, um, interviewed three Polish migrants who have settled permanently in the local town of Elmbridge, um, and conducted three focus groups with Eastern European seasonal horticultural workers in Mayfield. Um, 
comprising a total of 19 participants. So Mayfield has a long history of market gardening, that is, growing fruit and vegetables for commercial purposes, and is a predominantly white English village which historically has not experienced much in the way of immigration and multiculture. However, since 2004, large numbers of Eastern European migrants from countries including Latvia, Lithuania, Bulgaria, Romania, Czech Republic and Poland have come to work in the village at the large fruit and vegetable growing nurseries usually on a seasonal basis throughout the spring and summer months. The Eastern European migrants in Mayfield work and also live on the village farms, usually in caravans and converted farm buildings. And this spatial separation from the rest of the village, combined with very long working hours, means that villagers and migrants' social interactions are limited. The focus of this presentation, however, is the limited social spaces where migrants and villagers do come into contact and interact with one another, such as the uh, new Polish restaurant in Elmbridge, the local town, places of work within and outside of the village, through landlord and tenant relationships, and in the local nightclub. While a number of villagers and migrants do interact at a variety of levels and in a range of spheres, there remains an inherent power dynamic between the two groups where a boundary or social dichotomy is erected between villager, insider, self and migrant, outsider, other. This dichotomous relationship subsequently informs local discourse regarding the appropriateness of villagers' interactions and relationships with migrants. Different degrees of intimacy between English villagers and Eastern European migrants are deemed acceptable and even encouraged or unacceptable and feared. While, while cross-ethnic interactions between villagers and migrants appear to be increasing, the boundary between village us and migrant them remains. As Anne-Marie Fortier 2007 outlines in her study of multicultural intimacies between white British and British Muslim neighbours in Bradford, neighbourliness is deemed an acceptable degree of intimacy though an elevation of this intimacy to the level of friendship, sexual reproduction, and a deeper exchange of cultural or religious values provokes anxiety. Similarly, in Mayfield, as I will go, go on to explain, it's acceptable for village people to employ Eastern European migrants to conduct, to conduct jobs that local people no longer want to do, because they're considered diligent and hardworking. It's acceptable to rent real estate properties to migrants, though it's expected that they will overcrowd the dwelling with a constant flow of family members, friends and tenuous acquaintances. It's even acceptable to sample the cuisine at the new Polish restaurant in Elmbridge, but less acceptable to enjoy it. Formal interactions between villagers and migrants are tolerated and usually involve the exchange of money for services, but to cross the boundary from professional to personal, to enter into an intimate or sexual relationship with a migrant is seen to be beyond the limit of appropriate conduct. This ethno-sexual frontier is one which must not be crossed. Therefore, I'm interested in the margins, the boundaries between villager and migrant, insider and outsider, as locations where unwritten rules about belonging and proper, appropriate and respectable behaviour are tested. I should also examine the ways in which constructions of the migrant other reinforce understandings of the village self. 
The emergence of three or four uh, Eastern European grocery stores, a Polish restaurant and an Eastern European butcher on Swan Street in Elmbridge are perceived by local people uh, as evidence of the difference between local English residents and Eastern European migrant workers. The assumption being that we eat differently to them. We have different tastes to them, and their food is not for us. Many of my interviewees feel that the Eastern European stores are out of bounds for them. They fear that they may not recognise the products available, that the food might not be to our taste, or indeed some are not interested in uh, trying Eastern European foods, which one respondent, um, Roy77, referred to as foreign muck. One of my interviewees uh, had visited the Polish restaurant in Elmbridge, however. Pat, 65, um, who was the wife of a grower um, in the village, described her experience to me. She said that it was beautifully done out. The stone floors were absolutely fabulous. It was very pretty and very nicely done, and a lot of money had been spent on it. But it was quite odd. Her friend Maureen had the soup, which was very thin soup with very thin noodles in, and we both had the stroganoff. But I mean, I had about two dessert spoons of stroganoff. It was awful. I always think of it with rice, but it was on a kind of pasta which was stuffed, and those were dumplings, apparently. But I think of dumplings like what we cook in stew. So you've got to really know where you're at and what you're asking for. Pat approves of the fabulous stone floors in the restaurant and appreciates that a lot of money has been spent on the decor. However, she's bewildered by the menu and described the food as both quite odd and awful. She draws attention to the fact that we, English, serve stroganoff with rice, whereas they serve stroganoff with dumplings, thus highlighting a cultural difference and, in her opinion, inferiority, alluding to the right and wrong way of serving food. What's particularly interesting, however, is, is Pat's feeling that to enjoy a meal in the Polish restaurant, you've got to really know where you're at and what you're asking for. This statement suggests that she felt a sense of discomfort at feeling out of her depth, not having the cultural knowledge to know what to order and what to expect. For a brief moment, Pat finds herself in the same situation that Eastern European migrants experience daily in Mayfield lacking cultural capital and experiencing a sense of vulnerability. At the restaurant, Pat got a taste of the other in two senses. She sampled Polish food and used her distaste for it to confirm a sense of cultural difference between English and Polish, but she also experienced what it is to be a cultural outsider. By visiting the Polish restaurant, it could be argued that Pat took a step towards the cultural other. But rather than breaking down the boundary between insider and outsider, her appraisal of the restaurant serves to reinforce a division between them. The employment of Eastern European migrants by village people and local people in the wider Elmbridge area is widespread and accepted, if not positively encouraged. In Mayfield itself, Eastern European migrants are employed to conduct unskilled labour, such as planting, picking and packaging fruit and vegetables grown on the village nurseries. However, Mayfield residents who work outside of the village also come into contact with Eastern European migrant workers in different sectors. 
For example, Alice, who works for a company uh, which manufactures and sells catering equipment, told me, from an employer's point of view, migrant workers, especially Polish or European, will work a lot harder than English people for less money. If you were to put an English worker and a Polish worker together, the Polish doubles the output of the English person, because the English tend to be lazy and tend to be slapdash and think that will do, whereas the Polish will work, work and work. This mantra that Eastern Europeans, or rather the Polish, as they're most often known, um, are hard-working and make better employees than local English people is frequently repeated in Mayfield. Yet, an unequal power relationship is evidenced here. Although an English person's work might be slapdash, as Alice puts it, this is because the work itself is not seen as worthy of their time and effort. Cleaning catering equipment, as well as conducting manual labour on the village farms, is seen to be beneath local people, and it's now viewed by village people um, as the work that the migrants do. So whilst praising migrant workers for their positive, positive attitude to work, Alex fixes them as other, as different, and as suited to the undesirable work that local people no longer wish to do. Similarly, Linda, 46, told me about a Polish man, Matius, who came to work as a handyman at her home upon the recommendation of a friend. She was very impressed with his willingness to work, attention to detail and range of skills. She said, There was one day when I said, It's really going to rain today, Matus. I don't think there's really much for you to do. But my kitchen cabinets all need oiling. They're all oak and they need stripping and oiling. I'll do that, he said. Anyway, I had to go out and I came back a bit later and he'd covered all the knobs and all the hinges with kitchen towels so he didn't make them mucky. I wouldn't have bothered, she laughed. But he did it so well, he put all the newspaper down and did it all. And then, and then he came back another time and brought all these pictures of his wife and his family and everything, which was lovely. She was making cakes with his mother in the pictures. They obviously all lived together. My partner Dave was, was fascinated with the old machinery that they'd got in the garden, all farm machinery, because it was basically converted from horse-drawn to tractor-drawn, so no wonder he knew how to do things over here. I suppose he was in his mid-thirties, about 35, but him and his wife worked over here seven days a week, for six years, I think, <coughs> in order to have their own house built in Poland. Then she got pregnant, and she went back home to have the baby in Poland, and they're both over there now. He sent his brother to do some work for me after that, but his English wasn't as good, and it was difficult to explain what I wanted doing. He wasn't as good. Never mind. This excerpt from my interview with Linda demonstrates how village people are happy to employ Eastern European migrant migrants, even when the work on offer is domestic in nature to take place within their homes. Linda was impressed that Matthews would do anything, and delighted in the way that he covered the hinges and doorknobs on her oak kitchen cupboards so as not, not to dirty them with oil. The antithesis of the slap-dash approach noted by Alice earlier, which they have come to expect from English tradesmen. Linda was interested to see the photographs of Matusa's family making cakes, and her partner Dave, who works in agriculture himself, was fascinated by the old farm machinery in the background of the photographs. Rather than focusing on the differences between them, there is a hint here 
a fleeting moment where Linda and Dave appear to be noting the similarities between their lives in England and Matusa's life in Poland as rural, family-oriented and agricultural. Linda and Dave are learning more about Matus on a personal level, teetering on the boundary between friendship and the more formal relationship of employer and, in, um, and employee. However, we are reminded of the function of this relationship by Matus's brother. Matus sent his brother to undertake similar domestic-based work for Linda, but he wasn't as good, so their relationship failed. While Linda was interested in Matus's personal life, their relationship was ultimately sustained because he was a good worker. Linda was offering work in exchange for, fi in exchange for financial remuneration, and Matuse completed the work to a satisfactory standard. When Linda realised that employing Matuse's brother was not a vi viable option, their relationship had no future. So while Linda and Dave came to learn more about Matuse while he worked for them, their relationship was nonetheless coloured by the inherent power dynamics found between employer and employee. A similar power dynamic is evident between village landlords and migrant tenants, which I'll now turn to. Turn to. Several of my interviewees um, own properties outside of Mayfield, in the local area, um, but also elsewhere in the country, which they lease to rent-paying tenants. This is another example of one of the few contexts where villagers come into contact with Eastern European migrants in the Mayfield area, and another example of how interactions between villagers and migrants are often mediated by written or unwritten contracts related to the exchange of money in return for the provision of a service such as a meal, a job, or in this case, a home. Phil, 39, who owns two properties in Elmbridge, rents both out to Eastern European migrants. His tenants pay the rent on time, and he describes them as being very nice and having caused absolutely no problems. However, Phil simultaneously displays some unease when he observes that Swan Street, where his rented flat is located, is turning into an Eastern European enclave of town. He explained, I must admit, I certainly think that Swan Street seems to be turning into Polish town. Obviously, there's quite a, few po quite a few Polish shops down there now, a Polish restaurant, butchers, and it's just becoming a bit of an enclave. So the migrants that he has dealt with personally are no problem, but the wider migrant population and their impact on the town are to be viewed with suspicion. Phil is content with conducting business-like transactions with Eastern European migrants, this is deemed an acceptable type of relationship for village people to have with migrants, and if money can be made from them, then all the better. But the increased visibility of the Eastern European population in the local town, and the prospect of living next door to migrants, a subject discussed in other interviews, tests the degree to which they're willing to engage and interact with the migrant other. Two other village residents, uh, Louisa and her husband Ben, who are both in their mid-thirties, moved, moved to Mayfield from Elmbridge 18 months ago. They have had more first-hand interactions with Eastern European migrants than most of the villagers in Mayfield, mainly because a group of Eastern Europeans lived in the rented house next door to them for the three years that they lived in Elmbridge. Louisa explained 
that although her general impression of her, of her Eastern European neighbours was that they seemed very pleasant, their unconventional habits and the constant flurry of transient tenants were a matter of deep concern to her and Ben when they decided to sell their townhouse in order to move to the village. She said, Well, the ones that we used to live next door to, how many people actually lived there, I haven't got a clue. In the mornings, they were so nice, but in the mornings they would bring all their airbeds down into the garden, and you never saw the same person leaving the house. There was a constant flurry. I mean, some of them seemed very pleasant, but you didn't really know who was who and who actually lived there. But they were all very quiet and very good neighbours. They made an effort. They always tried to speak to you in English, so they made a real effort. In all fairness, when we found out who lived there when we were moving in, we thought, oh God, because they were renting it, and we just thought, oh no. And then when we were selling it, we were thinking, oh God, don't be out in the garden when we've got people round, she laughed. And they weren't, and we never mentioned them. When people asked us what the neighbours were like, we said, oh fine, and that's as far as we went. So to have these Eastern European migrants as neighbours tested the degree of intimacy that Louisa and Ben were able to tolerate. And they were worried that prospective buyers of their house would be deterred by the prospect of living next door to them. Outwardly, their neighbourly relations were congenial, but Louisa felt that the migrants' presence would affect the desirability of their own house which they were trying to sell. Although she considered them to be very quiet and very good neighbours, Louisa neglected to tell potential buyers that the migrants were renting next door and hoped that they would not make an appearance when they were showing people around the house. These neighbours could very well have been Phil's tenants who also squeezed in to his small two-bed uh, re rental house in Elmbridge. So this illustrates once more that while the villagers of Mayfield are happy to profit from the migrants' demand for rental housing, to live next door to migrants tests the degree to which they're willing to engage and interact with the migrant other. The examples of interactions between villagers and migrants thus far in this presentation, as customer and proprietor of the Polish restaurant, as employer and employee, and as landlord and tenant, are all loaded with inherent power relations. Village people can choose whether or not to engage with Polish cultural cuisine, they exercise agency in making the decision whether or not to spend their money at this or another culinary establishment. Village people can choose whether or not to employ Eastern European workers. If migrants will work hard for minimal remuneration, then villagers such as Linda, and also the owners of the large fruit and vegetable growing nurseries in Mayfield, can profit from this new labour pool. <coughs> if the workers are no good, such as Matusa's brother, they're disposable, and a replacement can easily be found. Village people can also choose to whom they rent their houses. Eastern European migrants' demand for rental housing in Elmbridge is high, so once again, villagers stand to make considerable profits from a transient migrant population. However, to return to a quote from Anne-Marie Fortier given in my introduction, a deeper exchange of cultural or religious values provokes anxiety. The interactions given here take place on the villagers' terms. But the perception that migrants are turning Swan Street into an Eastern European enclave 
suggests that migrants' cultural impact on Elmbridge is expanding despite the disapproval of local people. They're stamping their cultural identity onto this place, and this is provoking anxiety among village people who do not wish to engage with migrants at a cultural level. Indeed, some see it as a threat. One interviewed interviewee told me that we'll all have to start speaking Polish soon, we being white English villagers. It's expected by the villagers that Eastern European migrants should assimilate as much as possible to rural English life by learning the English language, embracing local culture, and simultaneously letting go of their own cultural values. However, the Warsawification of Swan Street, as another interviewee put it, is evidence that this is not taking place. It's seen as a defiant act against assimilation and cements in local people's minds the cultural difference between themselves and the Polish, as they're locally known. Generally speaking, the villagers of Mayfield are not interested in engaging in relationships of cultural exchange with Eastern European migrants. This degree of intimacy is a step too far. A boundary of cultural difference is erected between the two groups, and as I describe next, uh, border crossing in the form of cross-ethnic friendships and sexual relationships are rare. A desire for the other is not considered acceptable and is the, seen to a, as a threat to white English rural culture and respectable ways of living. The next section of my presentation focuses um, on a series of interviews conducted with a group of three Mayfield women uh, ranging in age from their late 30s to mid 40s, all of whom are divorced um, and have children under the age of 12. Every few months, um, these women uh, go out together to drink, dance and socialise in the pub and the nightclub in Elmbridge. The pubs and the nightclub in Elmbridge are of particular interest as they have become key social spaces where local men and women interact with migrant men and women in a context outside of the work environment. Uh, this particular group of women from Mayfield talked openly to me about their perceptions of migrant men and women based on their experiences and observations in uh, Elmbridge on Saturday nights. In particular, they talked about perceived differences between English and Eastern European gender relations, the perceived suitability of migrant men and women as sexual partners, and the gendered politics surrounding inter-ethnic relationships. It emerged from my conversations with these women that crossing the ethnosexual frontier, forging sexual relationships between English and Eastern European was considered seductive by a few, but dangerous and unacceptable by others. Indeed, negative stereotypes about the Eastern European ethnic other were often used um, by the women to reinforce ethnic differences and sustain ethnic segregation. It became apparent to me that proper gender roles and sexual behaviour are policed by these women themselves, and the display of this proper behaviour by village women is essential to claiming ethnic group membership, that is, respectable, white, English and rural, and also demarcating the ethnic boundary between English and Eastern European. These village women regularly make distinctions be between themselves and migrant women 
based on judgments about clothing and physical appearance. However, Kate, 41, takes this distinction one step further by describing Eastern European women's clothing and physical appearance as markers of sexual behaviour and sexual morality. She constructs migrant women as hypersexualized and in competition with village women for the attention of local English men. Kate told me, for example, about her observations of Eastern European women when out socialising in Elmbridge on Saturday nights. She said, In town in the evenings, the Polish girls look like prostitutes. You can spot them a mile off. I mean, I've been into town at night, and some of them definitely are prostitutes touting for business, but their fashion sense is just awful, really cheap. You think, where the hell did you get those clothes from? I replied, Perhaps their clothes are quite trendy in Poland. She said, I don't know, but the local girls don't like it. In what way? I don't know. They look cheap and they think they're going to run off with their boyfriends. They see them as competition, I think. In this excerpt, Kate um, defines Polish girls through inappropriateness. Their style of dress, which emphasises their sexuality, is interpreted by local girls as inappropriate and threatening and migrant women are thus positioned as lacking the correct feminine cultural knowledge to dress themselves correctly. Kate's description of the women as looking cheap and like prostitutes situates them as without the competence for style or taste. However, this is not just about fashion, but rather the type of women that there seem to be. Kate employs what Finch, 1993, calls the classing gaze, whereby judgments, judgments about class have more to do with morals than traditional markers of class status. In fact, her judgments about the migrant women hark back to 19th century discourses where a woman's respectability was determined in relation to her role as a wife and mother, her responsibility, the control of her sexuality, and her care, protection, and education of children. Therefore, one could argue that this conceptualisation of migrant women is produced from anxiety about disruption to the local social order, the foregoing of respectable femininity, and the risk of com competition for potential boyfriends, husbands and fathers due to uncontrolled and immoral sexuality. By conceptualising migrant women in this way, village women are able to cons consolidate their own identity and power, by distancing themselves from others who transgress local cultural norms. Migrant women are being characterised by absence or what they seem to lack. In the village women's eyes, they lack taste, style, femininity, morals, respectability and class. And as Skeggs 1997 has argued, to be not respectable is to have little social value or legitimacy. Furthermore, village women are policing the boundaries of multicultural intimacy between local men and migrant women by constructing migrant women as inappropriately sexual and lacking respectable femininity. Echoing Kate's observations from the nightclub in Elmbridge, Zoe, 40, developed the narrative about migrant sexuality, this time in relation to migrant men. She explained... The Polish men tend, seem to be more pushy than local men. They'll come on the dance floor and they'll be really quite pushy. They'll make a decision, make a beeline for you. 
and be like, come on, come up here and dance, you know. They come and dance with you and your friends. Oh yeah, and they're quite full on as well. They don't back down. You have to be quite firm with them if you're not interested. In my conversations with Kate and Zoe, the theme of Eastern European men as pushy and aggressive and the need for local women to be cautious of them was raised repeatedly. There was a recurrent perception that gender relations in the UK are more progressive than in Eastern Europe and that Eastern European men do not view women as their equals. For example, Tanya feels that they don't treat their women properly. They don't respect them and, and the English girls won't have it. We're used to be treating equally, you know, with more respect. You do occasionally see English lads getting together with Polish girls, but never the other way round. In time, I'm sure there will be more mixing, but that's certainly not the case at the moment. In Tanya's opinion, Eastern European men's failure to treat women properly and with respect is unacceptable. Her construction of Eastern European men's male chauvinism situates them as undesirable and threatening, characterised like Eastern European women by their lack of cultural awareness and competence. They are therefore held in, a, in opposition to local English men who Kate believes treat women with more respect. In Kate, Zoe and Tanya's accounts and observations of Elmbridge on Saturday nights, both migrant men and women are constructed as possessing aggressive sexuality. In the case of migrant women, it's their fashion sense which leads local women to this conclusion. And for migrant men, it's the interpretation of their behaviour as pushy and persistent in the context of the nightclub in town. Village women also cite Eastern European men's disrespectful treatment of women as justification for maintaining a boundary between them. In doing so, they construct Eastern European migrants as a cultural other whose gender relations are unequal and thus unacceptable. These sexual sanctions, forbidding relationships between Eastern European migrants and local men and women, demarcate positions of power by enforcing middle-class conventions of respectable behaviour and thus the personal and public boundaries of ethnicity. Respectability is therefore a way of villagers to define themselves against migrants, a way of saying, I am not that other. So to conclude, uh, while it's widely accepted among villagers that Eastern European migrant workers are contributing positively to the local economy and keeping the traditional horticultural industry in the village afloat, an elevation of the employer-employee or landlord-tenant relationship to the level of friendship, cultural exchange or sexual reproduction provokes anxiety. There's a limit to the multicultural intimacy that villagers are willing to tolerate. For them, living side by side in a state of relative indifference presents an image of successfully integrated physical relations in the geographically bounded space of the village but there is scant evidence of the development of any more meaningful face-to-face -face relationships and a social and cultural distance between the two ethnic groups is maintained. Thank you.